Well, thank you so much for, for coming in this weekend. Uh, I don't know if you guys have gotten a taste of the cold brew this morning. It's delicious every morning. So I just want to give a shout out. We most rarely shout out to the people who make the coffee. I just want to give it. Can we give like a thank you to the people who serve us with coffee? Yes. That has to be the most exuberant applause I've heard this morning. Uh, well, uh, we are Redemption Church, and I'm Trey. I'm one of the pastors here. There's four of us on staff, and uh, we're one church with 10 congregations throughout Arizona. We're gospel-centered, and we're outward-focused. We believe that all of life is all for Jesus. We like to say something, that we exist to embody the gospel in all of life in the Arcadia area. So that's, that's kind of what we're about. And this morning, I just want to bring us up to speed on two main things. Three but two. First is this. We have, what's the first slide? Yep, okay. I just didn't know which order. So uh, Steve and Marla Wagner, so Steve and his wife, are going to be doing an interview with Frank um, Wednesday on October 20th, 7 to 8. I would highly encourage you to come. So they have given their lives into the ministry of helping people who struggle with sex addiction and addiction to pornography so it's both Steve and his wife. And the thing is, is that a lot of us have come into contact with either being someone who struggles with this or being around someone who struggles with this. And so this has traumatized us on either side of that. And so um, this ministry and, w- and kind of the ministry that they're a part of, we would love to connect you and we would love to have those tools for us as a, as a body to help us look more like Christ um, not just in those who struggle with this, but those who have been damaged by those who struggle with this, too. Um, the second uh, is baptisms. So the, on this wonderful holy day, uh, October 31st, we're going to have some baptisms because Jesus is king and on the throne all days of the year. And uh, it's about time we have baptism. So if, yes, yes. So um, if it's something that you've given your life to Christ recently, or you have not been baptized, or you are thinking that you want to get baptized, this is going to be the only time I ever say this. Email Frank. (laughs) So, um, yeah, Frank would love to talk to you, and he would love to get you up to speed on that, and we would love to to care for you and be able to walk with you as we get to baptize you and be around and and celebrate that as a church body. Um, And then the last thing is this. Our band has been doing some really cool things lately. Yes, and I would love to show you guys that. So we have a little video, so take a look. As we're created in the image of God, we have this great calling to create as he creates. And so when we get to create art that is excellent and beautiful, exciting and engaging, that's a reflection of God's goodness and glory shining through us. The creative vision moving forward is to write songs that move us closer and push us closer to Jesus and who he is. And I think if we get that right, then the music that we're producing and the songs that we're writing reflect that and reflect him in us. The example is laid out all throughout scripture of God's people doing life together. When we get to live life side by side our congregation, that inspires the songs that we write. And we get to sing these songs together that are from our congregation for our congregation. We can place ourselves in the stories of these songs and be moved deeply with the purpose to worship Him, encompassing those different stories in our congregation so that when someone sings a song, they can identify specifically 
with the way that the Lord is moving in their life or with this trial that they went through. As worship leaders, our heart is to not sing over you or sing to you, but to sing alongside you to God. With this song, what I feel like is powerful is just a central focus on our need for Jesus. And even if that's something that we struggle to recognize, ultimately like at our core, what we need most is Jesus and His presence in our life. In this song, we get to lyrics that say, clear the room till all that's left is you. Take it all, do what only you can do. There's so many distractions, so many things that are pulling for our attention. Whether we're bringing something to the throne room that we don't need to be carrying, or whether we're bringing something that we're like white knuckling, holding on to with all our might. We don't want any of these idols. We don't want any of the things that are pulling for our attention. Jesus, we only want you. That's crying out to the Lord to work in us. It's us confessing that maybe we aren't doing that or maybe we don't know how to do that. Saying clear everything else out, all the distractions, the noise, the things society wants us to worship and the things that society wants us to bring into this space that divides us. I think just this complete surrender is just a beautiful picture of worshiping the Lord and leaving everything else up to Him. When you walk into a room, vulnerably carrying all of these things and leaving them with Jesus, that changes you when you leave. To lay everything down at the feet of Jesus and to ask God to clear the room, that's like a vulnerable, powerful thing. It really is like a game changer. When we put all of our idols on the table, that's truly how you live all of life, all for Jesus. Stand and sing this new song with us. There is a want, there is a need, there is a soul that's searching. There is a cry, there is a prayer, there is a heart that's breaking. There's a God that meets us here. You're the God that meets us here. Here in your presence, we surrender. Your sons and daughters sing hallelujah. Have your way now. Open up the heavens and fall. Holy Spirit, fall.
clear the room, clear the room Till all that's left is you Take it all, take it all Do what only you can do Clear the room, clear the room Till all that's left is you Clear the room, clear the room Till all that's left is you Take it all, take it all Do what only you can do Clear the room, clear the room Till all that's left is you Till all that's left is you standing for our scripture reading this morning. Good morning, church. The reading for today is John 14, 1 through 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on you, do you know him and have seen him? Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. 
Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Andrea. Good morning, Arcadia. Good to see you here. Um, as I mentioned, I guess a couple weeks ago, we are just blessed to have such gifted and talented uh, people leading us in worship here and now um, writing their own songs specifically for our congregation. That's just a great thing. That was really fun. And there are going to be more songs coming, so just giving you a heads up on that. Um, also want to mention, by the way, if you're new, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here. I forgot to do that. Hi. So, if you're, uh, and, and uh, also I wanted to mention, uh, Trey mentioned Wednesday night, and I just wanted to uh, bring that up again. I've, I've spent time now with Steve and Marla Wagner, and I'm, I'm really excited about Wednesday night. I would really encourage you to be here. I know it's a step uh, to, to uh, come and say you're interested in this topic because um, there's just all kinds of baggage with that, but... Uh, to hear their story as they walked through this themselves and then built a ministry around this issue of uh, sex addiction and pornography and all of that, um, you know, sharing the shame and the pain of the one who gets involved in it, and then, of course, sharing the pain and the trauma of those who have to deal with those who are involved in it. Uh, I just, I, I, you should come even if you're not mixed up in this, and the reason is because you know somebody who's mixed up in this, and it might be a help to them, and um, if you're looking for more information about them before you come, uh, their ministry is called Revive 40. Actually, Steve's ministry is called Revive 40, and then Marla's ministry is called Beloved, and we're going to be talking about both of those things, so I would encourage you to be here on Wednesday night from 7 to 8. So, as you noticed, if you've been around a while, uh, we're back in the Gospel of John. We've been working through the Gospel of John verse by verse, taking some breaks here and there. We just finished up with countercultural convictions, and so now we're back. And it's been five weeks, so I want to review where we are. We're going to be looking at the first half of chapter 14 today. I would encourage you, please, open your Bibles or your phones or your pads or whatever to, uh, to John 14. Uh, and then I'm going to ask you later on to, uh, to turn to Ephesians 5 toward the end of the message. So if you want to find Ephesians 5 also and just put your finger there and kind of keep, keep that spot, that would be good as well. Um, we're going to take now before Advent, we're going to be coming up with Advent pretty soon. So we're going to get through John 14, 15, and 16 before we hit Advent, and then sometime I think it's the third or fourth, uh, it's the fourth Sunday in January, we'll come back to John, and we'll finish up John 
uh, prior to Easter. So we'll have the resurrection of Jesus right around Easter time. That's great timing, I think. So, um, so to kind of review where we are in this gospel, Jesus' public ministry is over now. He's, he's privately with his disciples. And he's spending the last night of his life before the crucifixion with his disciples. He's washed their feet in chapter 13 in order to teach them and us about humility and service to others. He's also spoken of a new commandment that is rooted in love. And he foretold the betrayal of Judas and the denial by Peter. He's foretold of both of those events. And in this passage, the 14 verses that Andrea read for us, we're going to see three major themes. That's among many other themes, of course, but three major themes that I want us to be able to see. Here's the first one. Jesus has statements here about what is true. Now, everything that Jesus says is true, but he's especially pressing into truth in much of what we're looking at today, and we need to remember that truth is embodied in a person, not in a process, not in a, not in a principle, but it's embodied in a person, and that person in, is Jesus, and so in Jesus, we have access to that ever-elusive truth that you and I claim that we are seeking after. We have access to that truth. The second thing is what I would call incredulity, or or confusion or even disbelief. Those might be uh, synonyms for incredulity. But the incredulity that the disciples show Jesus when he starts talking to them about the fact that he's going to go away, about what's coming for him. And I will tell you that all of us, all of us, at one point or another, from, from the newest Christian to the person who's sort of exploring the gospel to the fir- for the first time to the most mature Christian, All of us are incredulous or confused or even disbelieving about something Jesus has said or done at some time. And usually we're incredulous about something that he has done or said that violates our sense of rightness or oughtness. And the disciples, we'll see, are just filled with this here. You heard in the reading even that Jesus is a little bit like, wait, you've been with me for three years and you still aren't getting it. He's a little bit frustrated, I think. And then the third major theme we see is transformation. A disciple's life in Christ, those who have come to Christ, God has saved them, uh, somebody who is following Christ, their life will be transformed. And, and, and the life in Christ, having the mind of Christ, uh, taking every thought captive to Christ, uh, will transform the way that we live our lives and the way that we understand the world. There's really no other option. There's no other option. A lack of transformation should be at least a little bit concerning in a person's life. But let me just say something about that there, too. Um, this transformation kind of comes in two different forms. I know people who have come to Christ and and they have a particular issue that they're really struggling with and they have prayed to Jesus, look, look, let's just deal with this issue right now, whatever it might be. Maybe it's a drug addiction or or alcohol or their, their, their mouth, whatever it might be, just deal with this. And there is almost immediate transformation, the miraculous transformation. And that is a beautiful thing. But what we need to also remember is that uh, the vast majority of transformation, honestly, 
um, takes place over time. Uh, the fact that, that God has even changed your heart and changed your mind about accepting Jesus is a huge transformation in and of itself. But then that starts this long, lifelong, for the rest of your life, sanctification or transformation that takes place over time. And so in, in my life, just to give you an example, in my life, Jackie would tell you, um, there wasn't this miraculous uh, change in my life right away when I came to Christ, other than the fact that I was interested and I wanted to go to church and I talked about Jesus. But the way I was living my life, she said that sanctification took some time and took some trans transformation over time. It's, it's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 when he says we are being conformed to the image of God's Son. So that's the third theme. Uh, before we get into, I know this is a long introduction, but there's a lot here. Um, this passage now, uh, today, so really the next uh, three chapters, you could include chapter 17 if you want to, but especially the next three chapters, uh, 14, 15, and 16, begins what I call Jesus' famous last words. We're going to notice in the next six weeks before Advent that Jesus, on the last night of his life, Jesus doesn't discuss any of the frivolous and vapid th uh, things that, uh, that seem to fill so many of our conversations. And, and I know for some of you, the sons are not frivolous and vapid. But my guess is that when you're on your deathbed, you won't be talking about, do you think the sons will finally win the championship this year? There's going to be other things that you're going to want to talk about, I would hope. I will confess to you, when I'm on my deathbed, and you all can come and watch if you want, but when I'm on my deathbed, I won't say a word about the Chicago Blackhawks, okay? It'll be all about Jesus and getting to see him. That's what it's going to be about. So here's our summary statement for what Jesus says in these next few chapters. And I'm going to paraphrase this summary statement, but first I want to give you the context in which he's saying these things. So here's the context. After this night, the world of his 11 remaining disciples will be shattered. They will be disoriented. They will be distraught, bewildered, confused. And they'll be filled with fear and anxiety because of these events that are about to take place. He's going to be crucified. So anticipating their plight, here's what Jesus tells them. He says, listen, guys. And I know this is a paraphrase. He never says, listen, guys, in the scriptures. He says, truly, truly, or very, verily, verily. Listen, guys, is that version of very, verily, verily. Okay, so listen, guys. You are not in a sprint, but you're in a marathon. Remember a few weeks, well, maybe it was eight weeks ago, we talked about the infinite game. So here Jesus is letting them know, you're playing an infinite game. The rest of the world is playing a finite game. Your, your, your game is completely different. My game is completely different. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, there were people standing down below him saying, we got him, we won. And Jesus is saying, I'm playing a completely different game. I'm playing a long game. You're playing the short game. I'm playing an infinite game. So he says, listen, this is got, you're not in a sprint, guys. You're in a marathon. And it's going to be hard. And many times it'll feel like it's too much. You'll often feel overwhelmed. But you will prevail because I prevail. That's Jesus' message. And he says, I'm in charge of this, and I never make a mistake. So no matter how troublesome it will feel to you at the time, you will prevail because I have prevailed. And then he says, I'm also going to send you the Holy Spirit who will do even greater work than I have. You'll, you'll really like and appreciate the Holy Spirit. And after it's all over, you will have eternity to look forward. And finally, he says, 
let me make sure that you fully understand. I am not, I, I, I am not, nor have I ever speculated about the future because I am the future. He doesn't speculate about the future. He is the future. He says, I'm eternal, and I have lived eternally with the Father. So let's uh, look at, I'm going to split this up into three sections. Let's look at the first seven verses. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So he says, don't let your heart be troubled. Um, That word troubled literally means to shake up what should remain still. It means to shake up what should remain still. So in other words, this is a word about fear that is real but not helpful. It's a word that's about fear that is real but not helpful. You know, some, uh, some fear is helpful and necessary, and we, that's a whole other conversation, but there is fear that's helpful and necessary. But this fear that Jesus is talking about in the light of the gospel is unnecessary. So he's saying, don't let your hearts be afraid. Place your trust in God. The love of God and the grace of God is power to overcome this fear and anxiety that you're going to have. And this is the gospel. Understand, sin stirs. Sin shakes up our hearts. But faith in Jesus, believing in Jesus, settles us, settles us down. It, it unshakes our hearts. And it gives us peace and confidence and security. And then uh, Jesus says an absolutely amazing thing. He says, believe in God, but believe also in me. Now, when he says, believe also in me, that should have sucked all the air out of the room, and I imagine that it did. They, they, would, have, they would have breathed in and pulled back, and their jaws would have dropped. Now, why is that? Well, for the Jews, they worship one God. That's it. But now Jesus is claiming to be God, and he is. He's already said that to the professional religious people in John 10 when he says, I and the Father, we are one. And they responded to him saying that by wanting to kill him because he had blasphemed. Well, he's saying it again now to his disciples. I'm God. And the resurrection, which is going to come in four days, will seal this claim. After the resurrection, every one of these guys who had doubts and reservations about this, when they see him raised... When the resurrection happens, that's it. Game on. They know he's God at that point. So Jesus, this is one of the doctrines of the church that we need to understand. Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man. He's not half and half. He's 100% God, 100% man. And we need to understand that that's the only way that substitutionary atonement can work, is if he's fully God and fully man, His atonement, which substituted for us on the cross, is real, and that's the only way that it can possibly work. He has to be fully God, perfect, but fully man. In nature, he has to have experienced everything that we experienced, including temptation of sin, but not sin. 
So substitutionary atonement. He atones and we're made righteous. Okay? And, and, and because it's a substitutionary atonement, anything that any human, you or me, tries to bring to God for the atonement of our sins is actually sullied by our sin and therefore not helpful. So only Jesus can do this because he's holy and perfect. Jesus is the perfect spotless lamb who is God and is the only acceptable sacrifice for our sins. That's why he had to go to the cross. Now I want you to just think about this for a second. The word substitute, the word substitute has fairly negative connotations, does it not? Think about, I, mean, I just remember when I was a kid, substitute teacher, that just meant chaos in the classroom. Okay, the kids were in charge, all right? How about you're a substitute on a team? That means you're not good enough to be a starter. You're not first string. You're a bench warmer, okay? The NBA has a sixth man award. And I know some of you are like, yeah, Sean Marion won that. Isn't that cool? Okay, look, here you go. You're the best of the non-starters. What, what is this, like a, the NBA's version of a participation trophy? What's going on here, okay? I know some of you are getting really upset right now, but it's a six-man award. You're a substitute, okay? Negative connotation. All right, here you go. Try to substitute something in a restaurant. Just go ahead, try. First of all, I love those menus that say no substitutes, but if you do, if they do accept substitutes, here's what they're going to do. They're going to charge you extra, very likely, and of course the food server is going to make a face at you. Okay? <laughs> substitutes are not good. Do you enjoy substituting margarine for butter? Anybody? Do you enjoy substituting Splenda for real sugar? Do you, Joe, do you enjoy substituting turkey for real bacon? Not a chance, okay? Do, do you enjoy substituting decaf for true joy? I mean, come on. <laughs> I, let's just be honest about this. Don't lie to me. You want the butter. You want the sugar, the bacon, the caffeine. Substitute is not a happy word for most. Yet, that Jesus took our spot on the cross. He substituted for us and took the wrath of God for our sin, wrath that we deserved. He atoned for our sins by being our substitute. Substitute is perhaps the most beautiful theological word ever because it's Jesus. He goes to the cross, and we are forgiven and redeemed. And then verse 2, he says, There are many rooms in my Father's house. Translating this Greek word as rooms isn't quite right or helpful. To say room sounds really restrictive. Some of you are like, do I get a bathroom with the room? I mean, it, it's, it's too restrictive. Literally, the word means dwelling place. So literally what Jesus is saying to them is he's saying, I'm going to give you and make for you a new way to live, a new way to settle in that you have never experienced. Adam and Eve experienced this for a little while in Genesis chapter 2. But since then, nobody's experienced this new way of living, this new dwelling place that we're going to have. And it encompasses all of the new Jerusalem that we read about in Revelation 21 and 22. It's essentially Jesus saying, my father is wealthy in more ways than just cash. And he's going to share all of that wealth with you. And then verses 3 and 4, he tells his disciples, don't worry, you're in. And you're going to be with me later. You will come later. He says, I go to prepare this for you. That word prepare literally means I'm going to make the arrangements for you. 
He's, he's like a travel agent who's going to take care of everything for you, and it's, there's not going to be a single mistake or cancellation. In other words, Jesus insists, here you go, you can't accomplish this, only I can accomplish this. You can't make the arrangements. I'm the only one who can make the arrangements for this. And, and, and it is once again an extension of the proper understanding of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. These are these truths that Jesus is just pounding away at. Jesus has done the work and we receive the salvation. It's bonkers that that happens that way. Now, and then he says, take you to myself. And that translates the Greek word that literally means by and through my initiative and my initiative only, I will take you in and reside along with you. But verse 4 is interesting. They have no idea where he's going, but they should have known. He came from the Father. He's going back from, to the Father. And, and he's told them that, but they still just don't quite get it. And so in verse 5, we see some incredulity. Thomas, um, he's the most incredulous, always is, doubting Thomas. And so he's happy to ask the question. He's asking what everybody else is thinking. But understand, this is not a stupid question. This is all new for them. This is, nobody's ever taught this before because nobody's ever been the Messiah before. And so that word for know is not the usual Greek word gnosis. It's a word that literally means, Lord, we're not aware of this way. We have no awareness. You haven't shared that with us. Now, why is that? Well, Jesus' vision of salvation and eternal life was so dramatically new and different that it takes a while to really settle in. It takes a while to fully understand it. There's only one way to salvation. It's through grace initiated by the power of the cross and the resurrection. It's not through keeping the law because Jesus is the only one who is able to keep the law, but it's by his sacrifice. And by his sacrifice, he imputes his righteousness to us, to those who believe. And then look at verse 6. Let me just reread verse 6. Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Notice the definite articles there. I've heard people try to use this argument. Yes, Jesus is a way, but there are many other ways. Jesus is a truth, but there are many other truths. Jesus is a life, but there are many other No. The definite article makes it exclusive. It's Jesus. And, and just to make sure that they and us understood, he restates it in a different way. No one, no exceptions, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way, no other way, the truth, no other truth, and the life, no other life. And understand, Jesus is not showing us the way, the truth, or the life, and he's not teaching about the way, the truth, and the life. He's saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The way, the truth, and the life is a person. Salvation is a person. And then verse 7 represents kind of a decision time for anybody who reads this, and including those Guys that are in the room with him. That word new. They, they do know him. I mean, they've been with him for three years. But what Jesus is appealing to here is a deeper knowledge that's more than just intuition or theory or academic knowledge or proximity. He's saying, you have experienced me. You know by what I have done that what I say is true. So now it's decision time. Are you with me or not? 
And what he's saying is that the, the son, he says this already in John 10, but he's saying the son and the father are one in essence, but we are different in role. We are one in essence, but different in role. The Holy Spirit is also one with us in essence, but different in role. One God manifest in three different persons, three different roles, one essence. You can't believe one and not the other. You can't, you can't believe Father and Son and not believe in the Spirit and His Word and how He's guided the writing of the Word. Paul's words in Colossians come to mind here. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. And Jesus says, from now on, and that from now on refers to the resurrection. Once the resurrection happens, which is just a few days away, they will know in a new and profound way. So then you look at the next four verses, 8 through 11. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Belief leads to action. What we believe is demonstrated by what we do, things we say. Belief leads to transformation. I, I teach um, communication theory and public speaking at Paradise Valley Community College. And the last two semesters... All of the informative and persuasive speeches that I have from students, uh, the majority of them have been um, on cryptocurrency and why everybody should be buying cryptocurrency because it's never going to go down. So they just, oh, informative speech and persuasive speech, crypto, 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 crypto. I'm an expert on cryptocurrency now. I'm also older than them. And I remember the 1960s song from Blood, Sweat, and Tears. What goes up must come down. It's going to come down sooner or later, I think. Okay, But they believe it. They, they, they have invested everything in it. Their belief has led to action. It has led to transformation. Jesus is telling these guys that even though he will be gone, great things will happen. And he wants them to believe that because that transformation is needed for what's coming. Because Jesus, this is critical, Jesus is not disbanding his yoke of disciples in anticipation of his absence, but rather he's calling them to continue the work. And he's saying, you're actually going to do greater things with me gone. More incredulity there. How can it be better with you gone? He's calling them to continue this this work and greater things have been done. I mean, think about it. The church is now all over the world, and there are about a billion people who believe in Jesus. That's just slightly more than what they had at that moment when Jesus was with his 11 disciples. So the work has continued, and greater things have been done. So this is really, really, really good to help us understand that. Okay? So, um, they're still struggling to get it, though. And I will tell you, we don't have video of this. <laughs> but, 
But I imagine Jesus' shoulders just sagging when Philip asked that question, right? When Philip comes, he's just Jesus like, ah, Philip, come on. But he's the way and the truth and the life. And he says, what I've done, you should see. What I, you, you, by seeing what I've done, you should have no problem knowing who I am. And then 12 through 14, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works uh, than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Uh, we can have whatever we want as long as we just attach Jesus' name to it? Really? How's that work for everybody? Anybody? Okay. Anybody going to buy lottery tickets today? And look at the Circle K clerk and go, in Jesus' name. <laughs> okay. See, here's the problem. We have an alignment problem. Alignment comes first. Now, we all know, those of us who drive cars, we all know that if your front end is out of alignment, it's going to pull you off track and take you where you don't want to go, right? And we want to get our front end aligned, okay? Jesus is saying that when you ask in my name, the assumption is that you are aligned with me. You are lining up under what my heart is, what my teaching is, what my doctrine is. And so you need to know God's will first. There's that Promises of God's book. Uh, uh, anybody ever seen that Promises of God book? It's a nice little leather-bound book, and you open it up, and it's all the verses of God promising you things. And I remember when I first became a Christian, somebody gave me that book, and, and I kind of read through it and figured out that I was never going to have any more problems, and I was always going to be rich and well-off and never sick. So it's kind of cool, okay? Well... Jesus also says, we're going to get to this right before Advent in John 16. In this world, you will have trouble. That's a promise of God, and it's not in that book. So, so this helps us understand the alignment problem. Because it's not just a, about what we want. It's about what God wants for us. And the first thing he wants for us as believers is for us to seek after his will. So turn to Ephesians 5 for just a second. Turn to Ephesians 5. Here's what Paul writes, starting in verse 15. He says, look carefully then how you walk. Now, Jesus, Paul isn't saying, look, there might be places that you could get tripped. Metaphorically, he is saying that. But the idea of how you walk, that's an ancient Greek colloquialism for how you live your life. Look carefully at how you live your life. Not as an unwise person, but as a wise person. What's a synonym for unwise? Foolish. Not as a foolish person, but as a wise person. Making the best use of time because the days are evil. This is really important. We live in a fallen, broken world, corrupted by sin. And if we're going to buy into foolishness, we're not going to be able to navigate this world very well. We need God's wisdom to be able to navigate this world. That's what he's saying about the days being dark and evil. 
And then in verse 17, he says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So he's saying that wisdom and alignment comes from pursuing after God's will, from studying his word, from praying, from being in connection with other Christians, from seeking after what it is that God wants for you. And his word has a big part of it. I, uh, I've been reading some essays about some denominations that want to change their doctrine. And I was fascinated. These are long, long essays talking about how they're going to change their doctrine. And in these long, long, long essays, with plenty of opportunity for the leaders of these denominations to say, we are searching the scriptures to find out what God thinks. All they're saying is, we're trying to discern the spirit of God so that we know what to do. Well, that just tells me that they're going to do whatever they want. You can, you can discern what the spirit of God is, but if it contradicts what scripture says, it's not the spirit of God. This is where we start seeking after the will of God is right here with his word. But we also need prayer. We need community. We need those trusted friends who will speak into our lives when we're out of alignment. We desperately, desperately need that. The New Testament scholar Merrill Tenney straightens us out on this. He writes this, Jesus grants only such prayers as are presented in consistency or alignment with his character and purpose. So here's a helpful way uh, to summarize what it means to truly pray in Jesus' name, four things. One, our prayer should first and foremost be the result of first seeking after his will and wisdom. Secondly, our prayer should point to his purposes and kingdom and not to our own selfishness. Third, our prayer should be rooted uh, not in our own merit or worthiness, but in his and his alone. And last, our prayer should be for the pursuit of his glory first and our needs second. So let me try to put a bow on this, these 14 verses here. Um, this is something that I see happening in this passage and also even in the several verses that are going to follow this until we actually get to chapter 18. Humans live in the past, present, and future. It's one of the things that makes us rational beings. We understand past, present, and future, and we understand how they relate. And we get anxious about all three, do we not? We do. We, we are anxious about our past sins and transgressions and offenses, our mistakes, our regrets, and our blunders. And we ask ourselves, how do we escape the shame, the guilt, and the embarrassment of the things that I've done that I'm not proud of and the people that I've hurt? We think about that. We are also anxious about our present worldview or philosophy or theology or politic or efforts, whether or not they're going to work well for us. We're concerned. We're constantly tinkering with that as well. Are we on the right track? Is what we're doing now and what we're believing now, is it the right thing for me? And then we're also anxious about whether or not we're going to be fulfilled, satisfied, and content with what the future holds for us, right? We think a lot about that. Can I count on or, or hope that there is something more than this? 
Jesus not only answers all three of those issues, but he is the answer to all three of those issues. Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote, of these 14 verses, this is the most comforting sermon Jesus ever preached. By the power of, of the cross, our past is blotted out. Jesus has atoned for our sin. By the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us and his word teaching and guiding us, we are presently on the right course. As Paul says in Romans, we are being conformed to the image of God's Son. Sanctification is real. And by the power of the resurrection, we know that our future is secure. It's fulfilling and it's beautiful. We will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father God, we, uh, we come to you again now as we restart this, this letter that John wrote that's called the Gospel. That's all about Jesus. His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and who he is. That he is the word taking on flesh. God, we thank you for that. We, we praise you that you've given us your son. And that you've sent the Holy Spirit. And that you've written our, your word for us. So God, help us to understand how we can not only submit to those things, but also embody what the church should be. Give us the courage and the joy to be able to do that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to have a time now of, of reflection, time when we come and come to the Lord's table, take communion. On this night that Jesus was betrayed, at one point during the meal, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me calls us to it. And then later on, after they had eaten, he took the cup of wine and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. It's my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And Paul tells us later on, he says, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. That when we step out into this center aisle and come and get a communion kit, we're confessing our need for a Savior, that we're sinners lost without hope in and of ourselves. and We need a, we need a supernatural intervention by God. But we're also celebrating that God has given us that supernatural intervention in His Son through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, that we know Jesus and we celebrate that. So come to His table and celebrate who Jesus is. my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me I see his wounds his hands, his feet 
my Savior on that cursed tree. His body bound and drenched in tears, they laid him down in Joseph's tomb, the entrance sealed by heavy stone, Messiah still and Worship this Jesus who is the Lord of the past and the present and the future. We'll praise the name.
Wow, amen. Let me read this from John. These are Jesus' words to us from John 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble, but here's the good news, church. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen. Go in peace. Live all of life, all for Jesus. We'll see you next week.